Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. My guest today is Ed Kinsella. As always, you can see his artwork pertaining to this podcast on my website, brentwatkinson.com, as well as Ed's website, edwardkinsellaillustration.com. Kinsella is spelled K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A, just the way it sounds. And I will, of course, put a link to his site in my podcast notes. We held this interview via the magic of the internet, and although there are a few audio aberrations in the sound, the content of his thoughts and words more than make up for not being 100% studio quality. His friends and family call him Ted for reasons I have never understood, and if you listen closely to this interview, you will hear me slip into that mode as well and refer to him as Ted. As he began his career, he has always been the type of business person and craftsman that has insisted that he give nothing but the highest quality and focus on every job, no matter what that job is. He approaches each session of picture making as if it is the most important image he will ever make. And this obsession with quality has served him well, as he has received many gold and silver medals in the top award publications of the industry, including the Society of Illustrators, Spectrum Fantasy Art, Communication Arts, and more. His client list is a mile long of the most coveted publications most illustrators only dream about working with. Of particular interest to me in this interview is when Ted talks about the difference of reacting and constructing during different types of image-making processes. Well, there you go. I've already referred to him as Ted. You caught me. Let's get into it. So, Ed, tell us what type of work that you enjoy doing the most. And I'll just leave it really open-ended. So, what do you like doing the most? That's a tough question for me. I've always felt like, and I feel like a lot of illustrators feel this way. If you, if you sent me out into the world every day and said, you can do whatever you want, money is not a factor, what would you do? That's a great way to look I at would, it. Yeah. I, I would probably draw and paint from life um, in a sketchbook, probably. Everything, like landscapes and figures and still lifes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I think just that act of sitting somewhere and you're almost sort of, you're observing you're taking things in. It's almost a, a meditative state that you enter into and you are looking and reacting. And there's so many external elements that happen that are either pleasurable and positive, or sometimes they're negative, but those things don't happen in your studio. The, the stuff that happens in your studio is, you can almost expect it to happen. You know, it's, there's no change. There's no interest. There's no, there's really nothing new. Um, 
there aren't those new experiences that sort of excite you and make you feel alive. Um, well, I, for I, me, I would call way. that um, the studio, like being a lab, being a very controlled environment. And then when you go out into the real world and do that, then you're in the field and right, right, no right. telling what's yeah. going to happen. Exactly. And, and that work excites me like nothing else. And um, the times that I've done that and spent a lot of time doing it were the happiest, happiest times I can remember as an artist. But when it comes to just sort of a, uh, if that's just like a base level question, what do I like to draw? I'd say faces. I like faces. Okay. Uh, you said that you have had the experience of going out and just uh, working from life in your sketchbook. Do you have a, a recent example of that or a past experience that you can draw on that really brings back those warm fuzzies? Recently, no, because I have a two and a half year old and I feel like if I have any downtime, which is what I usually use that for, or my downtime, I'll you know, go to a coffee shop and draw and um, go out into the world and and do that. But I feel like nowadays, if I have downtime, it's just spent with my family. So um, I think that's a great investment. Nothing wrong with yeah. that. <laughs> that's the right answer, isn't it? Sure. Um, <laughs> if I okay, if I can remember the, the the most potent time that happened is when I went to Paris in 2008. And I went there uh, for a month with a girl I was dating. And um, the you know, it was the luckiest I've ever been in my entire life. I, I flew to Paris, stayed in a, uh, an apartment two blocks from the Louvre. And my sole purpose for one month of my life, um, by the way, I didn't have internet access or a phone. So none of those sort of uh, technological hangups um, so my sole purpose the whole time was to go to museums, see art, go to the parks, go to um, historic places, sightsee, and just draw and paint in my sketchbook. And it was different than, uh, well, I guess it was different for a reason. I made sure it was different because I had heard of artists going to Paris and uh, in, in, in modern times, the people that I knew, peers of mine, um, heard of them going on these trips and then, you know, being like, Oh, well, we did a lot of sightseeing. We took a lot of pictures, but we didn't really draw much. And I remember thinking like, what a waste, you know, if you're going to go to Europe and it's a, an art trip, why not make some art while you're there? And that's all, you know, it's difficult for a lot of people because when you go on trips like this, it's with your family and there's these obligations. But to me, I wanted the obligation, not the obligation, but I wanted the focus to be, growing as an artist and the girl that I was dating at the time was totally open to that and really excited about it too because she was interested in what I was doing and um so I had this 50 page sort of all media sketchbook and a little uh, gouache set and just a few brushes not a lot of materials some pencils um but I had the best time I had the time of my life because I'd spend a day in Musée d'Orsay and I'd come outside and I'd do a painting in an hour and that sort of that direct um, inspiration and then seeing basically the scenes that you just looked at uh, are outside and now it's your turn if you want to. Um, and that sort of direct inspiration, um, God, it was amazing. It was, it was the best time I ever had. Did you know at the time in your mind that that experience was going to be this seminal experience that may shape and direct your life 
Were you aware of that or did you look back on it and I realize knew, it? I knew. And I knew it. And when I, when it started, well, I mean, I knew when I got to the apartment because it was one of those just old, beautiful buildings. Um, I forget who the street designer was that put all the Hausman, maybe. They put up all those huge sort of very Paris looking buildings um, and sort of redesigned the streets at one point or another. And we were staying in a building. It was, it was right off of a line of one of those um, neighborhoods. And um, it was overlooking, we were way up on the, I don't even remember what floor it was, but we were, I think we were on the top floor and overlooking this square with a fountain. And there was a Pissarro book in the apartment. And one night I was flipping through it and I was like, wait a second. I recognize that fountain. Like that's, that's the fountain that's right down there. How weird is that? So I started looking and I realized he painted everything that was in this. There was like a collection of images. And obviously the person who owned the apartment knew this. So they put the book in there, but he had painted this collection of images from a hotel looking directly at the building we were staying in. So he was like, he was painting the window that I was looking out, you know, and that, that just blew my mind. That was one of a ton of experiences I had there where I realized there was, there was so much magic to it and not only the place, but my experience there. And it was one of those places where all the, the fairy tale, you know, the, the sort of magic kingdom mm-hmm. aspects of the whole thing, it was all real. Like all that, like just, you know, nostalgia for this Paris that you maybe never even visited before. It's real. And if you, if you soak it up, if you drink it up in the right way, you'll experience it. I feel like if I was just sightseeing the whole time and sort of pounding the pavement and like trying to fit it in before we moved to the next place, I don't think I would have enjoyed it, but it was doing it this way and slowing down and, and really taking it in that, that made me uh, really have a great experience there. When you were doing some of this work on location, which all of it was on location, did you, find it easier to get into what I will call the zone and artists all know what that means. It means time means nothing to you. Uh, you're involved in the work. Uh, it's, it's like you're channeling, um, you know, the, the universe and, and the work almost does itself. That's the way I describe it because I've had a few, very few disappointingly few times in my career when I'll pick up my painting instruments and then six hours later I'm done and I don't even remember doing it. And it's a good piece of work. Did that come easily for you? Well, no. During that experience, I mean. Yeah, it didn't come easily, but it's the only, well, it's one of two or three times that it's happened to me, but that time was sort of the most potent. Um and I'm going to sound like a nutcase probably, but I don't care. I, I, um, I started the sketchbook 50 pages and my sole intention was to, uh, fill it. And at the time I was drawing out of my head a lot and Before I realized you went that, on this trip, you were drawing out yeah, of your head. Yeah. I was drawing faces and monsters and, and things like that. And the well was running dry and I knew it. And I knew that, you know, just as I was taught my freshman year in college, 
you're not going to, you know, to draw better out of your head, you got to draw more from life. You know, you got to learn the, the mechanics of it if you want to um, do something that's expressive and from memory. And um, so I going on this trip, I said, you know, I got to force myself to stop drawing out of my head. I'm not getting anything out of it. I, I could sit in my sketchbook for hours and do a little painting of something out of my head, or maybe I'm making this little creature or whatever. And at the end of it, I felt empty. And it was so, it was just the worst. Cause it was like, wait a second, I'm, so, I'm drawing the things that I'm supposed to like to draw, like making these little creatures and characters. And, but I'm not getting anything out of it. And I feel so empty when I'm finished and that's not the way I'm supposed to feel. At least I don't think so. So when I went on this trip, I thought, all right, I'm going to stop drawing out of my head for this trip. Let's see, let's see if I can do it. I don't know if I can, cause I'm sort of obsessive. So, um, I set out with the sketchbook and day one to start drawing at the cafes and little table scenes and things. And a lot of it started, um, from your draw your drink assignment at the illustration Academy. And that that's an oldie, but a goodie. Yeah. That your instruction to do that made still life fun again. Uh, which I actually don't know that it was ever fun before you introduced me to that. And, and once I realized like, Oh yeah, wait a second. This is about my experience. This is well, what did I'm you seeing. Just start having fun with it or let yourself go and not be so critical about making it perfect the way you think it's supposed to look to someone else. Yeah. You know, it, it took it out of the, um, sort of academic, um, on canvas oil painting, um, not only that, but also like, you know, when you'd go to class and, and art school or someone would set up a still life and it'd be all this, this bullshit that you wouldn't want to paint, you know, they were like, always horribly done and horribly yeah. lit and they were just, you know, <laughs> get a cow skull and some weeds. I don't get it. And then they'd be like, okay, everyone bring in an object. And then some idiot would bring in a stuffed animal and it's like, this sucks. Like nobody wants to paint that thing, you know? Okay. So uninspiring, uninspired, all this, you know, sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. So when I went there, I, I, the draw your drink was really what started it. And by you introducing me to that sort of making me, uh, or getting me excited about still life again, I realized before I really went there that, you know, what really excited me, it's not just drawing a drink. It's, it's starting with one little portion of what's on a table and then drawing everything around it. Once I complete that, piece. So everything's in relation to that cup or that saucer or whatever. And then can I draw the forks? Can I draw the napkins? Can I draw the chairs? Can I draw the people? Can I, you know, so like it sort of expanded around that. And the excitement for me became, can I do on the spot composition successfully? And can I play with sketchbook materials, pens and, and brush pens and pencils and things? And can I mix them all up and make something interesting? And all the while doing that, can I make my own decisions? Like, I know it's a white table, but I'm going to fill it in with black ink. And little decisions like that started to really excite me. Like, I was the author of this little chunk of my life. And then my sketchbooks became not sketchbooks. They became visual journals, little entries of, oh, yeah, I remember we ate there and we had this. And, like, you vomited because that was so gross. You know, not that, that happened. But um, <laughs> this memory that you Hey, it's stored, Paris. It might you know, who cares? Yeah, right. yeah. Well, it, that was exciting. And so it started there and then, it, and then there was this thought like, okay, well, I'm going to put together this little, little gouache travel set because I know that I'm going to be so inspired by these impressionist painters that 
I've loved my whole life that I'm going to want to paint. So I better figure out a way to do it. So I just made a little gouache set up and all that stuff. But anyways, um, I've, I've gone away from your question. Um, I started the sketchbook, was really excited about it, but I wasn't really, you know, it was sort of, the, it felt similar to what I've been doing. And then I started to try, I tried to do my first painting, I tried to paint the outside of the Louvre and uh, just a portion of it. And it was a failure. I didn't like it. It didn't work. I tried to paint at Palais Royale and that didn't work either. It just, I couldn't figure out a technique that was quick, but satisfying. That was, that was um, sort of a good explanation of what I was seeing, good representation, but not. So how did you deal with those so-called failures? I mean, why didn't you just quit and grab your camera and make it easy? I was upset, uh, but I decided that I was going to stick to it just because that's the kind of person I am, I guess. I'm stubborn. I don't, I don't like failure. So I stuck with it. And what I realized was all I really needed was multiple days in a row building up, you know, my practice. So I had to understand, I had to figure out a way that would work. I had to keep doing it over and over again. And by like day 10 of drawing and painting and things starting to click, things started to really click. And I remember a specific moment. I don't, I don't remember exactly what I was painting. It was probably, um, trying to think back to the pieces that I did. It was probably painting in um, the Luxembourg gardens and things were just really clicking. I mean, it just felt right. And I, I mean, I'd give anything, just go back over there and do it all over again. But um, I remember this experience where I was really in the zone and I don't often get in the zone. Um, not in this way. I felt as if things were going so well in the particular piece that I was working on and all the pieces I had done a few days before that, everything was really clicking. I felt as if I was not doing it. I wasn't in control. And it seemed like all the hesitations that normally come up in my brain were turned off. It was just, I was, I was actually just feeling and creating, you know, this sort of bringing in the information and put and putting it back out again, but not, not this slap dash, um, hurried, um, clumsy sort of application that was normal for me. It was a flowing energy. And as I was sort of realizing this, I felt as if I was connecting to a rhythm and an energy that was flowing through every object that I was seeing, the buildings, the cars, the people. And I, it was so potent by the time I was like really deep into this piece that I felt like I could see a vibrating energy flowing around everything very quickly uh, and connecting every object. And that was like, okay, well, uh, I'm never going to feel that again. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was just, it was too good, you know? Um, but well, I, I'm, I'm I th- glad I had that experience. Well, I think a lot of artists feel similar things at different times in their career or their day or their life or their hour or whatever. I think, uh, in my opinion, that artists are maybe one of the few people left that actually listen to themselves. Most people over busy themselves or they look at their phone all day long or the internet all day long. So they don't have to listen to themselves. And I think it was Rembrandt that said, 
yeah, I can't get away from myself. I'm with myself every minute. And you were with yourself every minute in Paris and it was paying off. So you, you touched on a lot of things. Number one, I'm going to go back a couple of paragraphs and you said, Hey, I'm sitting at a table with a white tablecloth. I'm going to make it black. I'm going to fill it in with black ink. Well, that is the artist taking ownership and control of their image. If you were to show me that image right now, I wouldn't know that you were sitting at a table with a white tablecloth. It doesn't matter. Your image is alive and important, and that's what I'm looking at. So you can do anything you want, and you had a reason for doing it. And you were also saying that at the end of day 10, after these unsuccessful attempts, well, that's just called practice. I mean, you were practicing with something new. You'd never gone to Europe and painted in a sketchbook before. So you just kept at it and you practiced and practiced and then you, then it clicked and was it easier? Okay. After you had the experience of feeling and seeing this energy, was it easier the next couple of days to, to get into the mode of seeing and interpreting again? Yeah, it, it, um, for the rest of the trip, things seemed to flow quite well and the only thing that was sort of sad about it was that the days that it didn't flow so well were even more um, disappointing. And there were a couple of days where, you know, I was tired or I don't know, I couldn't find anything that really was interesting to me that much. And um, those days it, it was, it was disappointing, but you know, who cares? I was, <laughs> I was having the time of my life. Um, and for the most part, the rest of the trip just felt like this, this dream where I was experiencing things I had thought about, dreamed about for, uh, most of my life. And, and I was just elbows deep in, in this world that, you know, I had dreamed about and it seemed as if, you know, it just seemed as if it was all for me and it was an important time. And I'm not, um, I'm, I, I've always hated the idea of, of ego or, or um, self-importance or anything like that. I think it's all BS, but um, I felt that it was important that I was there. I felt like if I was going to ever become something, um, an artist of any sort of worth, that I needed to be there. And the... And, and the funny thing is, 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 you know, imagine this amazing experience. And then when it's over, you're moving to Little Rock, Arkansas. And that was, <laughs> that was like the worst polar opposite. Yeah. Um, the, the term culture shock doesn't <laughs> quite get there. Uh, we need a, we need a, a different uh, explanation of that. Yeah, it was, it was. It was quite a juxtaposition, that's for sure. How often were you drawing and painting? Were you doing it 10 hours a day, an hour? How much? I would spend, um, I would spend an hour drawing and an hour painting, give or take, um, a day. And that was really it. And it's, it's sort of amazing to think that um, I got so much out of that. The rest of the day was getting to destinations and, you know, sort of sightseeing or 
I mean, honestly, the best part about being there for a month is that we spent three days in Musée d'Orsay. We spent um, two and a half days at the Louvre, you know, and just like getting that time and being able to space it out and saying like, oh, I'm going to look at this collection this morning and I'm going to look at this in the afternoon and I'm really going to spend time with the paintings. I'm not going to rush through it. We don't have anywhere to be. There's nobody saying I'm hungry. You know, like it's, um, it's a, it's an experience that is um, for me and how, as, as long as I want it to be, you know, and that, and that was, it felt like a unique experience. I like that you mentioned you spent three days at the Dorsey and two and a half days at the Louvre, I I did the same thing. I would much rather go to the Dorsey, yeah, than the Louvre. Not that there's anything wrong with the Louvre, the Louvre, but uh, I remember walking into the Dorsey and seeing all these amazing Fantine Latour portraits. I didn't yeah. know he did portraits, and it just it was so amazing. I'm I'm used to seeing his still lifes, especially his uh, flower paintings, which are remarkable. But there was a um, portrait of a family that Fontaine Latour had done. And then he painted the father by himself. And then he painted, uh, you know, other groupings. And then he painted their daughter, who was probably about 21 or 22 years old. Mm -hmm. And I looked at the person with me and I said, he is totally in love with this woman. And, (laughs) you know, you walk down the hall and you see additional paintings of her. And it's just like... Mm-hmm. Wonder how that came about. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's an amazing collection. And the other thing I learned about going to museums in Europe is I kept asking myself, hey, who is the gatekeeper? How come I've never heard of this person? I've never seen this painting. Mm. I can't buy a postcard. I can't buy a poster. It's It's like there's this weird secret society that says, okay, this is the artwork that we're letting out into the yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you felt the same thing. Well, wasn't there something about like Klimt wasn't really that popular in the United States until the sixties. Probably. Isn't, I think there's, there's some weird fact like that, which is that's strange to me because he's just so popular all across the board um, with most people. But yeah, I, I feel that way. And um, when I got into German art, um, from George Pratt's influence, um, all of a sudden, you know, finding things like um, the Art Nouveau magazine, Jugend, um, and all the artists that are in there who are so ridiculously skilled. And it, it all, I always think like, yeah, where, where are, hell, where are the books on those artists, you know? Um, so one of the things I've started doing is I just use Google Translate and I'll find German editions of all these artists' uh, books, and I'll just translate, you know, pages and articles and posts and um, things like that just That's to great find idea. these books. Yeah, because a lot of that stuff is there. It's just not here because nobody wants to put the money forth to because um, they don't know if it's going to be lucrative. So, you know, I mean, there's a reason there's a Monet poster in every dentist's office. It's because it's it's lucrative for the person who, who bought the rights, right? Exactly. Yes. Follow the money. Yeah. Do you think that the influence of art has changed over time? Meaning, has it dwindled? Are we less influenced by art now than perhaps a hundred years ago? Or is art at the forefront 
and it's it's very important to us now. Art meaning not only pictures, the printed type of material, but maybe music, movies, plays. Well, I mean, it seems like, I mean, it's, it's just sound, I'm going to sound sort of just like an old man talking about it, but it seems like TV kind of changed everything, but. Um, I think it did and still does. I think we're seeing how influential society still is um, these days politically. And I think political cartoons are actually just as important now as they were during the, you know, Thomas Nast boss tweed days um, as far as influencing uh, public opinion. But um, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. And I don't have a good answer for it because I, for most of my life as an artist, I decided that I didn't care what society thought and I didn't care what the market was for illustration. I didn't care what galleries would say um, because there's so many negative opinions about art and artists. And I felt that, and this is probably in my early days of college, I just decided there's so much negativity in the world and there's negativity about art and artists and who's good and who isn't good and what's worthy and what isn't. And I just decided I don't care. I'm not going to spend my time making these sorts of lists of what's good and what isn't and all this bullshit. I, I don't have the time or the energy for that. I'm going to focus on positives. I'm going to focus on my development, the things that excite me. And if someone else thinks that, that that stuff is, is silly cotton candy garbage, they can shove it up their ass because I'm I like it, you know. So um, and that's what I, I try to encourage my students to do. You know, sure, be conscious of the market, be conscious of what's going on, but pave your own way, go after your heart, and and find you know find your your soul within your own work, uh, and and look at art that has a soul, you know. And if if you feel like it's soulless garbage, maybe it is, um, you know. But I also tell them, you know life's too short to, to judge art and artists. And I feel like if someone is honest with themselves, they're making art honestly um, and they're trying, then they're okay in my book. You know, like if, if you care, I don't care what it is that you're making. I respect you. If you care, if you're interested. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't. I I try not to pay too much attention to it because I feel like as an artist, it's it's helpful to be sort of disconnected a little bit, um, and find your own way. Um, otherwise, I mean, otherwise, I might just end up sort of mainstream or something. And I I didn't want to do that. Well, I appreciate your attitude because that was my attitude about the same time when I was in college. I was in college way before you, but when I became that age, like you just talked about, you said you were a freshman in college. I was thinking the same thing because I thought, you know, you can't please the entire world. What do I want to do? And it's not really an egotistical thing. It's just like I needed to live my life and I needed to go a certain direction. And now, um, in the media, no matter what it is, but as you mentioned, especially television, Everything is based on fear. 
Do mm-hmm. I have enough money put away for retirement? Do I have a lump on the bottom of my foot that hurts when I walk? <laughs> uh, am I experiencing early dementia? Do I have heartburn when I lie down? You know, everything is is fear because something bad is going to happen. So you need this product mm-hmm. and give me your money. And I just get so tired of that. And I just, I turn it off. I just, I can't watch it. And I went through a long period of time when people would say, oh, what do you like to listen to when you paint? Uh, I like to hear the the painting knife on the canvas. I couldn't even listen mm-hmm. to music. Have you ever gone silent with media and TV and music? Yeah. Yeah, but I find that... Um that was easier when I had more time and now I don't have a lot of time. So my studio days used to be, I wasn't teaching. Um, now I teach a few days a week and I didn't have a kid. So I, um, I used to have the luxury of time and I would often still be, you know, pushing up against the end of a deadline and being worried about that. Or maybe I'd be a day late with a project or something, but usually it was my own fault where now, whereas now it's not my fault. It's usually some external factor that's keeping me from working. Um, but there were long days where, and before I had an iPhone, I was in heaven, you know, I mean, nobody would bug me. I could get, I could look through art books for hours before I even started my work. I drink coffee and just sit in my studio and think those days are at least for the past couple of years have not been there. And so now I try to jumpstart my system and I have a few ways of doing it. And one way is that I figured out recently is if I just listen to a movie that I've watched 30 times, if I just listen to it in the background. I know the dialogue. I know what's coming. It's not surprising, um, but it's words and it's dialogue. So I'm, I'm engaged enough that it's going to stop the part of my brain that's going to overthink what I'm working on. But I'm not so engaged that I'm distracted. So I've, I've figured out that I can do that I can get my work done quickly without hesitation. Um, and, uh, and I'm entertained, so I don't feel miserable. Um, but I'd like silence again. I mean, I'd like to have some long days in studio where I don't, I don't have to worry, you know, about meeting any deadlines or, or whatever. But, uh, yeah, no, not a lot of silence here. <laughs> <laughs> well, with a, uh, what, a two-year-old? Yeah, you, uh, yeah. there's not a lot of silence except at three o'clock in the morning, perhaps, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, nighttime is like a different world around here. So what types of art do you like to look at now? Is it just everything, anything? What do you gravitate toward when you're trying to um, jump, like you said, jumpstart yourself? I, so I, I've been, um, I've been pretty influenced by, um, turn of the century German Art Nouveau, uh, graphic magazine work for, I don't know, let's see, 2000, about 10 years, I guess. Give us a couple of names. Does Alphonse Mucha fall into that category? Yeah, but yeah, but he's, you know, he's, he's, um, he's loved and appreciated by all and it's very distinct and it's easy to find. These are, these names, nobody was talking about it. Um, and I was telling you that I have found located a bunch of the books. So people like, um, Hans Christensen, 
and uh, Colum and Moser, but he's he's pretty well known. He was one of the uh, Wiener Werkstatt artists, but I didn't know there was a book on him. And there's a book that I found um, by the publisher Thames and Hudson. And holy crap, it's beautiful. Um, and I'm looking at my bookshelf. Edward Tooney, but that's someone who George Pratt introduced me to. So I've been looking at him for a while. Uh, Albert Weisgerber. Um, that's a new name to me. Adolf Munzer. You should look up Adolf Munzer. I mean, just as a, a, a draftsman, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Um, I'm trying to think. Of so what, what is it in their work that really speaks to you? Well, for me, I've realized, and I had to figure out how to put it into words for students a few years ago, but uh, graphic interpretations of realistic things, that excites me. So making choices on color, composition, simplification, editing, um, an artist's sort of, um, like you were talking about authorship, an artist taking reality and making decisions to turn it into a graphic picture and all the different elements that are at that artist's disposal. So texture, flat, um, color, uh, so maybe it's limited color, um, and just even, you know, different media and sort of the mixing up of different things and saying, well, this part's going to be just flat texture. Um, maybe that's going to be like sort of a photocopy transfer. Uh, it'll have this turn of the century lithography look to it, this gritty look to it. And then over here is just going to be flat color. And then over here is going to be more rendered drawing, you know, like just these, this mix of things to represent something uh, from real life that excites me. So your initial questions about what do you, you know, what would you do? What, what excites you the most as an illustrator, what excites me the most is building the picture. So you know, I, I do pretty rendered sketches and students often ask me, well, how are you excited about the final? Like, how do you, what, what's left after this? You've already figured it out. And my response is, well, sure, you could think about it that way. But for me, the excitement really comes when I get to say, that's going to be ink. That's going to be this. This is going to be that. And I am not going to do it in Photoshop first. I'm going to take a risk. And I think this is going to work. Like, let's see if it works. And the satisfaction of building the picture, having it be just enough reality that the viewer's willing to come along for the ride. Not so much that it, it's super realistic, but, you know, playing with all those elements and then having that finished product, that's like gold, you know? It's not seeing a current of energy running through everything gold, but it's pretty close. It's silver, I guess. <laughs> so at what point in one of your illustrations can you tell that you've nailed it. It's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I did it. All I have to do is finish it. Or does that ever happen? If I take the time to do a good drawing, um, initially and really get everything sort of figured out, um, nine times out of 10, I have a portfolio piece and I, I it's just because I have a, a sort of a system and I know that if I had a good sketch, I got my photo reference. I took all the steps. You know, I didn't. I didn't cut any corners. If I do everything and and follow it right, and take a few risks, but also sort of know where I'm going with it, usually I'll end up with a portfolio piece if the subject matter is interesting. So, so you, I don't know. Usually, usually by the time I'm, you know, halfway through the final, I'll know if it's if it's going to be a good one. You mentioned the word risk. 
what kind of risk would you be taking and why is that important? Uh, risk sounds like it's a, a bad thing or it's a negative thing. It's a roll of the dice. So why bother with risk? Well, I'm the kind of person that, you know, talking about that uh, Paris trip, I like spontaneity. I love reacting. But with illustration, it's not reacting, it's constructing. So I feel like it's a different mindset. So I have to introduce one little level of risk. So maybe it's, you know, I work on paper with washes of gouache and ink wash and graphite and things like that. So if I can just put some ink on a brush and do a line with it or, um, you know, do something that's like do some application of paint that's risky then I get this little like, I don't know what the chemical is that that's that uh, is working in my brain, but I get this little nugget of satisfaction from taking that risk. We'll just call that an, an endorphin. You just get sure, this little endorphin. endorphin high. Yeah. So if I get that, it's satisfying. It it's it's sort of I don't know what it is, but it I feel like I'm such a freak that I figured out. You know, I'm talking about this listening to movies while I work and what that does to my brain. I figured out things that work for me to keep me happy, keep me interested, invested, excited. And I just keep pressing those buttons. You know, it's like, I just keep doing it over and over again. And year after year, I might have some ebb and flow of my excitement about the industry of illustration or if I'm going to make enough money this year or stuff like that, but I'm still excited. You know, I can still keep myself excited about image making. So I think, I feel like that's a victory because there were times when I didn't, want to do it at all. And I actually thought I might stop uh, being an illustrator. So I feel like if I can, if I can keep myself going uh, just enough, then um, I'm, it's a victory. You know, you were talking about endorphins. You were talking about um, listening to movies while you worked because it got your brain in the right place. And I've told many people over the years, when I win the lottery, because I know I'm going to win the lottery. I mean, if I just, you know, I've already spent the money, so sure. I have to, <laughs> I have to win. Yes. I just spent $2.4 billion. So I need the money. Um, wow. I always thought, okay, I'm going to go buy a bunch of EEG equipment, electro, what's it called? Electro encephalogram that, you know, the hood that you put on somebody with all the little electrodes hooked up to mm-hmm. it. And I'm going to, I'm going to put it on an artist and I'm going to say, make a painting, make a picture, do some type of artwork. And then we're going to videotape you and we're going to be very quiet and you just do your work. And at the end of it, uh, we are going to show you the tape and then you artist, you point out when you got in the zone and then we're going to look at that EEG. We're going to look and see what their brain is doing at the time. Mm -hmm. And it would be so interesting to see if you can train yourself to get there sooner, you know, train yourself to get into that zone and to see that vibration and that force that you saw over in Paris. And then can you teach it to other people and how to get there? It's easier than you think. It's just meditation. And the reason I know is because I, I experienced it. Um, I had some really stressful times uh, earlier in the year and I decided to experiment and meditate for 20 minutes on the day of a deadline. I had something due. It was a two day turnaround. I was really behind on it. 
And instead of rushing into my studio and, you know, being really stressed for the next however many hours, I decided I'm going to take 20 minutes. I'm going to sit on the floor of my studio. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to meditate. Uh, I did a guided meditation. And when it was over, I got up, I did the piece. It was a very successful piece. And all those little hesitations, all those issues, all the sort of blockers of being in the zone were completely gone. I was not uh, stressed out or worried for the entire day. I got it done. I turned it in on time. And I, and, I, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to get there. I feel like if I can do that once, you know, just by meditating once, if I, you know, like most um, people in modern society, you don't make time for things like that. You know, it's like, hello, here's the answer. Just meditate. I mean, I feel like like Eastern <laughs> uh, religions uh, have been telling us that forever. It's like, hello, you, you idiots in the West, just meditate. It's all you have to do. You don't, you don't need those pills. Meditate, you know, just um, calm yourself down like you're freaking out all the time. Um, it's true. And I feel like, you know, if you, if you got into a space where you were doing it every day um, and you really got good with the practice, I feel like you would not have as much difficulty with, with art. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think everybody's different. So maybe my experience wouldn't be the same for somebody else. But um, Well, people are different. But, but I believe every word you say uh, about your meditative experience and invariably students will come up to me. Somebody always comes up to me and they'll ask, Brent, do you believe in prayer? And I'll say, sure. Some people call it prayer. Some people call it meditation. Some people mm-hmm. call it focus. Some people call it slowing down. So there's something in your mind uh, the brain, you know, you know me well enough to know that uh, that I say you have to take care of your brain because yeah. that's what's doing the artwork. Your hand has nothing to do with it. Um, you're, you know, we're just big, you know, meat sacks walking around carrying our <laughs> brain from from one place to the other. Yeah. Uh, that's the important part. And and for twenty minutes, you took you took very good care of the part of your body that was actually going to do that illustration that day. Right. I should do it every day. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's, um, I was just listening to this podcast the other day and they were saying, you know, these are the things that we need to, you know, put on our calendar every month that we need to be, make sure that we're doing, but it's always, it always seems impractical. Oh, we can't do that. Cause we got to do this. We got to be at work. You know, we got to do this. We got to do that. Well, you're doing yourself a disservice every time you don't take care of yourself. And I don't care if it's meditation or prayer or um, just going for a nice long walk by yourself or hell, even just going to a coffee shop and drinking a cup of coffee and sitting there and looking at nature for a while, you know, like walk under some giant trees, just do something for yourself. That's reconnecting to um, your insides and also nature and breathing in the fresh air. And um, you know, that's, that's what we really need. And, And I feel like, Maybe that was a component to the Paris experience. Maybe it was being outside, not stuck inside. Again, you were in the field. You were actually out experiencing external stimulation. And you mentioned previously, some of it was probably negative. There was probably a Mm -hmm. bus that went by and blew diesel in your face or something. But that was part of the experience. Yeah, well, there's probably 
anything like that that happened is, you know, me, uh, totally naive and, and, um, just, you know, grinning from ear to ear. It's probably some giant truck that went by and splashing with water. I'm like, this is awesome. <laughs> I love this every minute. Well, like they say, it's not what happens to you that makes a difference. It's how you react to what happens that makes That's a difference. True. Easier said than done. You know, it's it's tough yeah, to be yeah. constantly positive. That's a yeah, tough thing. With a two year old, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm always I'm always a mess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that's a good distraction from things that might obsess you in a negative way. You know, you might be worried about something that all of a sudden, you know, your son needs some attention. So boom, you have to break out of whatever funk or whatever you know, silly thing that your brain is trying to do to you and deal with reality and help guide this person in their life. I think that's a, that would be a great, a great uh, thing to do, a great job, a great distraction. It is helpful. Yeah. It's been that uh, teaching has been helpful for me to sort of stay focused because I have to be, you know. You mentioned teaching. What do you like about teaching? I like a lot of things about teaching. Um, I didn't really know that I liked it until a couple of years ago. Does it seem effortless for you? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. So I started teaching online uh, for John and, and I didn't know if I would like it, especially because it was online, but the instant return that I would feel from helping a student and see them sort of light up knowing that, I was pushing them in the right direction um, or I was helping them push through sort of a blockage and seeing them light up from that and then take that motivation, that excitement and then put it into their work and have this very successful piece and knowing that I was a part of that. I helped them. They were appreciative of that. Thank me for it. There's nothing as satisfying as that. And art does making art yourself does not come close. Um, that feeling, um, getting that sort of over and over again, uh, from teaching is, is amazing. Um, do you ever use humor in your teaching? Yeah, but I, I don't a lot because I feel like it gets in the way. Um, I feel like there's a certain amount of information that I have to give you and I'm going to give you that information as soon as I possibly can um, to um, get you excited. And I feel like humor is, is, is very effective. Um, but for me, if I was to try to use humor while I was teaching, it would actually make it confusing, I think. And I, I don't want to distract from the point. And I, I feel like, you know, possibly could be boring without that, but I feel like my excitement for the subject matter, I would hope is inspiring um, and interesting to the students. And I feel like from my experiences with students, it has gone quite well. The only complaint I've ever really gotten is that I often have a grumpy look on my face, but that's just my face. I think it's a natural, <laughs> sort of a natural grump kind of a look. <laughs> I've always seen you smiling. I guess I'm around you at, at good okay. times, I suppose, because yeah, I've never seen yeah. you look grumpy. <laughs> I'm always excited to see you, so that's, that's the difference. <laughs> I think you're right about humor. It has to be used sparingly, and it has to be used 
exactly in the right place. And the reason I say that is because the Greeks figured that out. And in their plays, and I used to construct year-end shows after a... uh, after a seminar program that you and I have both been involved with. And the way that I would construct those shows, I completely stole from the Greeks because you would give your information and then you'd give some more information and then you would do something humorous. And at that point, again, you talked about endorphins in the brain before. The endorphins kick in, your brain lights up, and at that point you give in the Greek theater, the moral, or in my mm. term, in our term, if, if teaching, then you give the real crux of the information and you, you give the takeaway message. And then I'm, bring do, I'm it doing back. it all wrong, Brent. <laughs> no, I doubt that you are. great. No, I, I doubt you're doing it all wrong. You're probably doing everything correctly. Again, if you just do a stand up routine during your teaching, that's not effective. Uh, sure. But anyway, the, the Greeks, we steal everything that's good from the Greeks, believe me. The Romans did. <laughs> the Romans stole everything from the Greeks. I don't know if you feel this way, but it doesn't feel like work to me. Oh, not at all. No. Do you and, feel that way? And especially if you're tired and worn out, all you have to do is get to class. And then all of a sudden there's this charge of energy. I felt so guilty. It was just like I thought I was, you know, just sucking the energy out of all these fantastic students because I would get all energized and revved up and, and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is that? Where does that come from? I think it's just, um, being excited, like you said earlier about helping people, about giving them guidance to get that satisfaction of discovery in something very new to them. It's mm-hmm. like, we're living it all over again. Yeah, I feel like you get this like adrenaline surge sometimes. Oh, definitely. Or something. I don't know what it is. I feel like I should read a book about brain chemistry and because there's often things like that where, you know, like blocking your hesitations and to keep you from from doing your best work. And um, how do you find confidence? How do you get over this? And, and, and you know, I, John Hendricks, uh, who's... Um, Run, he's the chair of the illustration department at uh, WashU, and one of your former students, I believe. He is. Um, he he was like, yeah, it's you're going to be part therapist and part teacher, <laughs> and he's right. I mean, it really feels that way. It's like, and especially with art, because so much of this stuff is is um, this is brain related. You know, it's it's figuring out what works for you and what doesn't, and why, and how do you get around these, these issues that you're having and how do you overcome this hurdle? And it's, it's all these mind games just the entire time. And, and if you can figure all those things out, you're going to be, I think you're going to get a lot closer to, uh, to where you're trying to get. And I think becoming conscious of those things and really working on them sort of cut through all the issues I was having. I remember at a time when you said to me, and I'm just paraphrasing, you said like, okay, we're, I'm waiting on you. When's it going to happen? I know you're going to do good work. When are you going to do it? You know? And I was like, I don't know, Brent, <laughs> I'm trying. I don't know what I'm doing. No but pressure. I was floundering. No pressure. <laughs> I was completely floundering. And, but I knew that within me was an artist that was worth something. I just didn't know how to find that voice. And I just 
just dug through the swamp and wrote a lot of journal entries and and really dissected everything and, and looked at myself and who I was, and where I came from and why I thought the way I thought and all those little nuances. And once I started going through all those things and then applied it to my art and then sort of scaled back the influences and, and I did a lot of stuff with, with the, on the art side, the visual side too. But once I did all that stuff, everything just sort of started to happen. So I feel like with my students, it's like, oh man, I should be teaching two classes. One is like how to get out of the way of your own brain. And then the other one is how to get better at drawing, you know? Well, you've heard me say many times that you, the first thing you have to do to be an artist is get a hold of your brain and you have yeah. to figure out to how to do exactly all of the things that you're talking about. You have to say, uh, I've got to get some confidence and I can't be negative like this all the time and blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you where 99% of the answers lie. And that's in your sketchbook because mm -hmm. people that work in their sketchbook and draw and draw and draw, that is directly connected to your brain. Unfortunately, your hand and a pencil is in the way, but many, many answers. I think most answers come from the sketchbook and that's how you become who you are. And I think you gave us a, a brilliant illustration of clarity and of you being in Paris. Sure. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is it wasn't clarifying. It was almost the opposite. And then I was, I floundered for a while, you know, it was, it was just, you know, it was, it was like a dessert and then everything else was just garbage. And I, I didn't know how to get back to that. <laughs> and, and the truth is like, I, I don't think, um, I don't think I've ever found that again, but I'm, but I'm not sad about it. <laughs> uh, well, no, you're doing I'm, I'm, good it, work. It depresses me. You're teaching, you're published, you have medals. Uh, you know what? Um, I think things are, are, uh, are all right for you right now. Um, I'm a mess, Brent. Uh, I'm so depressed. This is not, <laughs> no, I mean, but the truth is, and the truth is like, I, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's, it's like, it's sort of like, like a me. double life thing. You want more all the time. You want to be the best that you can be. And you're, yeah. you're always trying to improve and you're always trying to say, okay, I kind of figured that out. Now what's next? What's the next mm -hmm. difficult step that I'm going to have to, you know, ruin my life for a certain amount of time until I conquer it. But that's stimulating yes. to us. Yeah. And I, I, I am that way. I'm, you know, to me it's, and I've talked to my wife about this, like, I feel like it's two different people. And I, one part of me has wanted to be an illustrator since they were seven years old. And the other part of me wants to be an artist. And are they separated? A lot of illustrators have had difficulty with that. And, um, I feel like there's, it's one or the other. And for me to, um, to me, for me to go back to the, the Paris mentality, I would have to change what I did every day. And, and I'm sure I would be happy and I would love it. So to tell you the truth, and this is like my secret diabolical plan, um, I'm teaching more next year and I'm hoping that I can teach even more in the coming years. And I'm thinking of 
taking on a lot less illustration and, and just getting out into the world and painting from life um, in that same sort of way where I'm reacting and I'm exploring and I'm traveling and, and things like that. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what will happen because I, I'm, I'm at a point right now um, where I'm just absolutely obsessed with illustration. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I feel like it's two different versions of me and, and it's hard to um, satisfy both. What, what did somebody tell you and you thought, oh, yeah, there we go. I have no idea. That's a really good question. I, um, I, you gave me advice. It's always stuck in my head. You said it's a roller coaster, a roller coaster of the work, the emotions. Um, it, it goes up and down all throughout the year, all throughout your career. And that it's, you know, that's the way everything is up and down. And you just got to have the courage to get back up again and, and keep traveling over the next hill. Um, I think well, the people that the people that quit, um, you know, and people quit for different reasons, but I think sometimes you just get down to the bottom of that hill. You just don't want to go back up again, which I don't think there's anything wrong with, but um, it's a hard career. It's a very hard career. And it's um, especially if you're working traditionally, um, it's a struggle. I told my wife, I joked this morning, I said, the truth that I should tell my students is if you're going to do illustration, especially traditionally, um, here's what's going to happen to you every year. You're going to say, Oh, I'm going to, I'm so excited for spring. Can't wait to go outside when the weather's nice. Guess what? You're going to miss all that nice weather and it's going to be 90 degrees before you get a day off. <laughs> and then when it's 90 degrees, you get some days off. Then you're going to be thinking about fall. When fall comes, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss all of fall. <laughs> you're going to get some winter days off, but that's about it. So I hope you're ready to miss all the fun parts of your life. You know, um, it's kind of true. So, um, I don't hear anything bleak in that. <laughs> Sounds good. No, but I mean, Oh, I love it. You know, I really love doing it. So just open your windows, you know? Um, yeah, I guess the best advice I ever got about anything from anyone, it's going to sound silly, it's going to sound cliche, but it's the first thing that it came to my mind. Because as a, um, I was raised Catholic, and when I was in high school, I, I stopped going to church when I got a driver's license, basically. Started making my own decisions, and I got into Buddhism. And the first thing I read, uh, well, two things. Um, life is suffering. And when I read that and understood its meaning, all my little stupid worries and issues and frustrations seemed to melt away because I realized they're going to be there no matter what. There's nothing I can do about it. And all the way down to the very simple things of, you know, this is the stuff you hear people complaining about all the time. This food is cold. This line's too long. It's too hot outside. I'm sweaty. It's like, shut up. You're going to be hot. You're going to be cold. You're going to be uncomfortable. This is going to hurt. That's going to hurt. Get over it. It's the rest of your life. So deal with it. You know, enjoy the good stuff. Stop talking about the stuff. Stop focusing on the negatives because you're going to be miserable for the rest of your life. Um, and I, I, you know, this is high school when I read that. The issue with reading that in high school is, you haven't really had any issues in your life yet. <laughs> Most likely. 
Uh, I know everyone's and you don't have much control over anything either at that point. So I didn't have the perspective that I now have at 35. Uh, Things are difficult, but keeping that in mind is what's important. The truth is we're all human beings. We fall, we get back up again, we make mistakes, we uh, figure things out. We're not always going to be perfect, but keeping that in mind is important uh, and understanding that. And then, and then the other part that I remember is just to, um, have compassion at the front end of your mind at all times. And that's another thing that as you get older, it gets harder to do, but being compassionate first, um, it's difficult because so many people are, are just are not good people and they want to take advantage of you in whatever, uh, way they can. But, um, you know, being compassionate, very important. It's, it makes you feel good as, as it, as it does, uh, those that you're being compassionate towards. So, um, those are, those are the things I try to live by, but do I follow them all the time? Hell no. I just try to. I think it's fairly easy for most artists to be compassionate and empathetic toward others. At least I, I think so. I think that's kind of the way we're wired anyway. And, uh, so now it's my term, my turn for a cliche that mm-hmm. comes to mind and, there's an old saying that says, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down. It just depends on how many times you get back up. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's pretty big because you always have to get up one more time. Yeah. And then you know what's coming. You're going to get knocked down again. Yep. And then you just screw up your courage and you just jump up and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think we've all had big failures in, in all aspects of our lives. And the older the get, the older you get, the more chances you have to fail. Uh, and the stakes are higher. And it's, it's interesting to, um, you know, to navigate all that and to find out like how much, um, just force and, and, and determination do I have? And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's, it's worth doing, you know? I mean, I feel like, um, it makes things interesting. That's for sure. (laughs) Oh yes. Very much so. Well, I've got, um, one final question for you. Okay. And let's pretend that, uh, we get done with this interview and your phone rings and somebody on the other end is offering you your dream job. Like you've been waiting so long for this and it's finally here what would that dream job be for you? It could be a little one, a big one, a long one, a short one, but what is it that you're just dying to do and you just wish it would come along and you finally get to do it? Wow. Um, oh, I think if, um, if somebody called me and said, we're going to fly you around Europe, and you're going to have a year to fill these sketchbooks and we're going to use it for a travel book and just do whatever you want. We're going to pay for everything. Um, it doesn't have to be all in the, in the year. You can come home and go back and come home and go back, whatever. But um, you're drawing and painting and, t- and, and journaling and your experience is going to be what the travel book is. Um, that's one. And the other answer to that is I've already done it. You know, like, um, you were very motivating. My other teachers are very motivating too to push me to 
go after the jobs that I wanted. The weird thing is I went after some of those, um, not really, not exactly the right ones, but the right ones came anyways. And a lot of stuff has found me, um, even though I wasn't trying for it. Like for instance, um, movie posters. I didn't, I didn't think I'd ever do movie posters. I'd, I've always loved poster art, uh, to lose the track. Some of the, some of the classic 1890s poster art of France and, and places like that. Um, so I've always loved posters, but I didn't think anybody would hire me to, to do one. Uh, I had some, um, companies like criterion collection, um, this small poster company called black dragon press that took some chances on me and let me do my own typography. Um, so I just, I really got to feel wow, like unheard I was, of. Yeah. I felt like I was the illustrator. I kind of always wanted to be, you know, just we're playing off some of that stuff from the turn of the century and, and putting my own spin on it. Um, just giving it this really classic feeling that, that, uh, would be exciting. And I love those jobs and doing those has only led to more and more and more and more. And recently I just did a, a, a poster for the British film Institute. Um, it was through black dragon press and it was, for uh, Jean Cocteau's Orphée, which is a 1950, I think 1950, uh, black and white film um, by Jean Cocteau. And it is so bizarre. It's beautifully shot. It's, you know, artsy and, and strange. And um, the characters are really great. Uh, the dialogue is great. It's, um, it was right up my alley. It was my kind of weird. And um, it just felt like, a job that was waiting for me. It was sort of like everything sort of funneled into that moment. And, um, I've had a, a relationship working relationship with black dragon press for a few years, really great art director there, uh, James park. Um, he's been very patient with me on some projects that I've taken a lot of time on, um, and still felt the confidence, um, even with issues I've had with that still felt the confidence to, to put my name forward for this project with British Film Institute. And there was a lot writing on it. Um, they were going to re-release the film, which I think it's actually out right now um, at uh, select theaters in uh, um, London. Now you said the title was Orphee? Yeah, it's Orpheus. Yeah. Oh, Orpheus, okay. But it's in French, so it's Orphee. I see, okay, you're fancy now, I got it. Yeah, got it. so, um, yeah, and I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I had never seen the film and, and I had, they asked me to write a few words about it. And I said, you know, it's one of those films where I, people had talked about it and I'd seen photos of it. And if you'd done anything for Criterion, that's like one of the films that just always sort of stand, sort of stands out to you um, as a visual. And I, it was on a list like oh, movies that I'll watch someday. Um, <laughs> it was sort of embarrassing. I hadn't seen it because um, I seem to do a lot of things that, that are classic film related, but um yeah, when I got the project and I watched the film, it just was like, wow, this was this assignment was made for me, you know, and I'm just so blessed to have gotten it. Uh, they let me do the typography. I got to I submitted six designs and the British Film Institute um, just picked one. No changes, no revisions. Um, they really liked the work. It went very smoothly. Um, it was just it was like, wow, that's what I want to do. I love the idea of watching an old film. You've got, you know, visuals already to draw from. Um, I do love concepting. I, I like that part of uh, illustration, especially with editorial assignments. But 
the idea of of having a visual already to play off of and then sort of just like this puzzle of taking those visuals and making a poster or making an interesting image or my interpretation of the subject matter i find it very interesting and then of course you know you usually get some nice high-res uh footage um to draw from and it's just it's always a enjoyable situation the the movie uh project so yeah so i think that's probably that was my dream job um i didn't really know till i did it but um i really do enjoy poster work ted thank you so much for all these great words great stories good interpretations of lots of different subjects that we've talked about today. I've really enjoyed it. And I want to thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much. I feel honored to have been asked. <laughs>